Tartarus by Marcus Rose Episode 3 Colossus Part 2 On the surface of the East Mariana Basin, about halfway between Japan and Papua New Guinea, the water rippled slightly. A few bubbles, almost imperceptible to the naked eye thanks to the choppiness of the Pacific waves, rose to the surface. In about a week, the island of Guam would experience an unexpected rise in the number of dead whales and dolphins being washed ashore. Locals would be somewhat troubled by the state of their corpses, thrashed as if by the maw of some vast leviathan, almost pulverized. The children would tell stories to each other about monstrous octopuses and stop playing at the beach for a while. They would never know what had really happened. Lewis realised that no one would ever know what had happened. They would find the pulverised remains of his submarine, Kyozo, at Challenger Deep. Either his body would be hopelessly tangled within the twisted corpse of the submarine, or it would be crushed by the pressure and slowly devoured by sharks in the incomprehensible dark and cold. If they were lucky, the rescue team would find a few scattered fragments of the drone which had detonated, paralysing Lewis's submarine, but the pieces would be too scattered and warped by the explosion to be identifiable. Whoever it was that did this to him would get away with it. Around him, the submarine continued to groan and creak. The outer layer of heavy cladding had been compromised when the ballast tank had been punctured and now the submarine was being slowly crushed as the outside pressure gradually increased. Lewis could still hear the water gushing into the ballast tank above him, slowly filling it up and increasing the speed of Kyozo's descent. That was something he had not factored into his preliminary calculations. If the ballast tank reached full capacity in ten minutes or so, Kyozo would be falling directly into the trench at her maximum downward velocity. It would therefore be 30 minutes, not 60, as he had originally believed, until his submarine smashed into the trench bed, pulverizing almost a decade's worth of research and engineering, and killing Lewis, the only witness to his own murder. Lewis gasped suddenly. That wasn't quite true. He was not the only witness. Lewis sat up, a tricky feat, thanks to the considerable angle at which Kyozo was pitching, and propped himself up against the cockpit's control console. He winced as his elbow bumped against one of the console supports, sending a coil of pain surging up his arm and into his shoulder. His forearm and hand, however, were completely numb. He tried to bend his elbow in order to rest his hand on his lap, but his arm did not budge. Carefully, Lewis used his other hand to lift his forearm upwards and over his lap. It felt as if he were touching someone else's limb. He could hear his heart pounding in his ears and suddenly became aware that he was holding his breath. Tenderly, he rested his forearm on his lap and exhaled. 
he looked up out of the cockpit and called out, Kuyo! As he spoke, his breath rose away from him in a small puff of water vapour. The salt content of the ocean meant that the seawater could fall below zero degrees Celsius and remain liquid. Lewis was too far down to benefit from the sun's warmth, and Kyoto's temperature regulation system was evidently damaged. Although this would be dangerous under normal circumstances, Lewis would be dead long before it could pose a threat to his health. Kuyo, the little cuboid robot who had always accompanied Lewis to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, did not answer Lewis's call, probably for the first time ever. Lewis tried again. Kuyo! Lewis let his head fall backwards and thump against the control console, staring at the cockpit ceiling. The emergency lighting, while not particularly bright, made seeing through the cockpit glass impossible thanks to the reflections in it. When Lewis tilted his head back to look through the screen, he saw himself. His reflected image was squashed and contorted by the curvature of the glass as if in a circus mirror. He looked ghoulish. Lewis closed his eyes. Despite the situation, he felt extremely calm. Where his mind had been a thunderous typhoon, with rain thrashing the boiling water like whips and chains, it now felt like a mirror surface of a lake. Not a ripple disturbed its surface, nor a gust of wind ruffled its reflective sheen. Lewis realised that this was because there was nothing left to worry him. His control over the situation had dissipated, and with it, his stress. There was only one more matter to resolve. Lewis opened his eyes again, and wondered how best to die. There was a small chance he would survive the impact with the trench bed. The submarine was, despite being structurally compromised by the explosion, still extremely sturdy. Kyoto's various prototypes had been thoroughly stress-tested in pressure chambers. Lewis realised that he would want to minimise his chances of surviving the impact with the trench bed. Such a scenario would only result in either his slow death of hypothermia or his gradually being crushed by the corpse of the submarine as it succumbed to the immense pressure. It was either that or a quick death during the impact. The cockpit was one of the lowest points of Kyoto and, Thanks to the angle at which she was pitching, it would likely be the first point to touch the trench bed during the impact. The glass, though immensely strong, would certainly be pulverised instantly, along with everything else, including him, inside the cabin. He could just stay where he was. The reflections in the cockpit glass would mean that he would be unable to see the trench bed coming. Regretting his previous calculations, he gingerly removed the watch from his wrist, which was still completely numb, and threw it across the cockpit. It bounced and skidded to a halt on the metal floor. Face down, he was ready. As Lewis closed his eyes, he was almost surprised to feel a cascade of tears pour down his cheeks. 
He failed to repress a quiet sob and used the sleeve of his hoodie to dry his cheeks. He sniffed loudly and bent his legs, bringing his body into a fetal position with his knees near his face. Slowly, he let his head fall forward and rested his forehead in the small gap between his legs. Lewis had just started rocking back and forth when he heard a colossal bang from above him. <coughs> For a confusing moment, Lewis thought that Kyozo had already hit the trench bed, but the impact was far too weak. The submarine barely trembled at the sound. He heard the sound again <coughs> and zeroed in on its location. It was coming from the cockpit glass behind him, the lowest part of the submarine. Keeping his bad arm tucked securely underneath the other one, Lewis leaned forward and, slowly, bracing himself against the control console, stood up. His shoulder complained at the effort, but Lewis barely noticed, his attention entirely focused on the cockpit glass. When he was upright enough to see the lowest part of the glass, Lewis was greeted with nothing but his own contorted reflection, looking, embarrassingly enough, absolutely terrified. Turning from the glass, Lewis cast his eye in the opposite direction, towards the back of the cockpit. On the cockpit wall was a small control console, which would allow him to manually override the emergency lighting. Although most of the console's functions were deadened, it was not considered essential enough to be activated by the emergency power supply, the emergency override switch, a large red button in the bottom corner of the console, was mechanical and would work without communication with the ship's computer. The problem, however, was that the switch was several meters uphill from where Lewis was currently propped against the control console. Normally, Lewis would be able to reach the switch simply by swiveling around in his chair, but thanks to the submarine's angle, activating the button was going to present a serious challenge. Lewis realized that, while the team who worked on Project Kyozo were certainly gifted engineers, they were terrible interior designers. As Lewis shifted his weight to try and get closer to the button, he heard a rattling sound coming from beneath him. Looking down, he saw a gift that Rupert Gray, Lewis's closest friend and colleague, had bought him during their trip to Tokyo's Yanaka district. A small beckoning cat, its arm miraculously still waving at him, rested at his feet. The good luck charm normally stayed in Lewis's room by his computer. Apparently, the explosion and subsequent impact with the trench wall had sent it flying through the submarine all the way to Lewis in the cockpit. Lewis bent with difficulty and scooped up the cat figure. It stared dully back at him, waggling its arm as if to taunt him after his injury. Lewis almost smiled. He looked up at the lighting control console and then back again at the good luck charm. He exhaled bringing the cat to his chest and adjusting his grip. He straightened his arm and did a couple of practice swings at waist level. He reconsidered, deciding to throw overarm and brought the cat up to his eye height. He shifted his weight, putting one foot in front of the other, pointing directly at the console. If he missed and threw the cat out of the cockpit, then he was done for. <coughs> Behind him, Lewis heard the bang again. He was closer to the glass this time 
and the sound made him jump, almost dropping the cat. The sound was followed by another, different noise. A heavy rubbing, as if something was moving against the cockpit glass. Lewis had never heard anything like it before. He felt the hairs on his arms stand on end, and he was suddenly colder, shivering slightly. Unable to stop himself, he twisted around to look through the glass. Again, he saw nothing but his horrified reflection, only inches away this time, staring back at him. He was breathing heavily now, and his breath was fogging up the cockpit glass. He wrenched himself back around, teeth bared, and refocused his attention on the lighting control console. He loosened his grip on the cat and moved it around in his palm, trying to judge the pool of gravity on it, which, thanks to the angle of the submarine, felt distinctly counterintuitive. He closed his eyes, took a few deep breaths, and felt his heart rate slow down. Opening his eyes again, he tightened his grip on the cat, stopped its waggling arm, and brought it up to his eye height one more time. No more thinking, he said to himself. Just throw the bloody cat. Keeping his eyes locked firmly on the red override button, Lewis flung the cat forwards and upwards, pivoting his feet to provide additional accuracy. The good luck charm arched unnaturally through the air, slowing quickly thanks to the submarine's angle and just collided with the button. Lewis just had enough time to see the cat's arm detach from its body with the force before the lights went off. Lewis noted, with intense surprise, that he was not, in fact, in complete darkness. The cockpit was filled with a dim, blue light. The light was slowly swaying and drifting around the room, as if cast through a rotating chandelier of mirrors and lenses. It took Lewis a while to figure out that the light was coming from beyond the cockpit glass. Another submarine? Lewis whirled around, and when he saw what was behind the glass, he let out a scream. His survival instincts kicked in, flooding his body with adrenaline, and he threw himself in the opposite direction from the glass. Lewis collided hard with the sloping floor, but he barely noticed the pain, kicking and scrambling to get away from the source of the light. He used his good arm to claw his way towards the cockpit door, using the cockpit chair, which was secured to the floor, as a step to propel himself upwards. Reaching up with strength that Lewis didn't know he had, he wrenched open the cockpit doors, which normally opened automatically, and pulled himself up and out of the cockpit, away from the glass. Lewis was aware of giant squid. As part of Project Kyozo, Lewis had learned a great deal about deep-sea wildlife, especially the kind which Kyozo would be likely to encounter. He was therefore also aware of the phenomenon known as abyssal giantism, according to which deep-sea animals were able to grow much larger than their counterparts in the shallows. Whatever he had seen, however, went far beyond what could be explained with conventional marine biology. The image was branded onto Lewis's mind as if with a scalding iron. Lewis had seen, pressed against the cockpit glass, a tentacle the width of a small car. Its suckers had been slowly expanding and contracting, and its skin had been completely transparent. Lewis had been able to see small clusters of light swarming like insects within the creature's body, orbiting around veins which carried black blood like tar oozing through the massive beast. What had really frightened Lewis, however, 
and what he couldn't remove from his mind's eye was what he had glimpsed beyond the tentacle. He shut his eyes, but the image only became larger and more vivid the more he tried to block it out. He was breathing incredibly fast and covered in a sheen of sweat. The image of the creature felt as if it were eating away at his mind, diminishing his ability to reason, to control himself. His breathing was so rapid that it was almost causing him to choke. He was beginning to feel lightheaded and nauseous. He opened his eyes, desperately trying to steady himself, and his gaze fell upon a little cuboid, which he had overlooked in the darkness as he was hauling himself out of the cockpit. Kuyo! he exclaimed, almost involuntarily, as he pulled himself towards the little robot. The android was propped up against the cockpit door on the opposite side of the opening from Lewis and appeared badly damaged. Lewis reached over the opening, grasped the small handle on Kuyo's upper side and hauled the surprisingly light robot over the gap. He lifted the robot onto his lap and turned it around, assessing the damage. It appeared to be mostly superficial. Dents and scratches on Kuyo's sides sustained during the explosion. But Kuyo's power supply, a small square segment which Kuyo could charge by plugging it into the ship's battery, was hanging off his back, clearly damaged in some way. Lewis pulled the power supply fully away from Kuyo and inspected it, turning it over in his hand. It had been caught on something during the fallout from the explosion and had been wrenched partially out of its socket, bending several of the gold pins which allowed it to transfer its power to Kuyo. Luckily, this was an easy enough fix. Lewis tried to bend the pins back into shape using his fingers, but they were too stiff for him to move. With some trepidation, Lewis brought the power supply to his mouth and clamped his teeth around one of the bent pins, manoeuvring the supply with his free hand to bend the pin back into its intended alignment. If Lewis had stuck a high-voltage power supply, business end first, into his mouth in front of Rupert Gray, he would most likely have been fired on the spot, but he had a feeling that this was a situation in which exceptions could be made. Having successfully corrected the position of the power supply's pins, Lewis pressed it into the slot on Kuyo's back with a satisfying click. Kuyo immediately began booting up, his front light blinking amber in the darkness. Within a few moments, Kuyo's front light turned deep crimson. His large feet began pedalling frantically, and it was all Lewis could do to prevent him from hurtling away from him down into the cockpit. When the robot's camera registered Lewis's face, however, the light turned bright green. Lewis, you're alive, the robot said, a little more surprised than Lewis thought was appropriate. Yep, he replied, smiling despite everything. But my arm's not right. My shoulder's sore, but my forearm and hand are numb. I can't use them. Most likely a fractured elbow, Kuyo noted, matter-of-factly. Drink this. A small drawer shot out of Kuyo's front, which contained a few shards of crushed plastic and a puddle of clear liquid. Painkillers, Kuyo said. It's broken, Kuyo, Lewis replied, pushing the drawer back into place. Oh, sorry. Kuyo's light turned amber again. He shuffled around in Lewis's lap. Why hasn't the emergency lighting turned on? I uh, turned it off, but we should turn it back on again now. I can't communicate with the ship's computer. I'll need to access an interface plug. There should be one next to the door to the battery department. Lewis heaved Kuyo off his lap 
and the robot almost tumbled over immediately before adjusting to the submarine's angle. Lewis caught sight of the shifting blue light coming from the cockpit and felt a cold shock of nausea course through his guts. Kuyo, however, did not seem to notice it, probably, Lewis reasoned, because he was using his infrared camera. He thought about filling the robot in on what he had seen beyond the cockpit glass, but realized that merely acknowledging its existence in his brain was making him physically sick. He pushed it from his mind, desperately trying to focus on Kuyo, who was making his way to the perpendicular wall, on which was a door leading to the battery department and the interface plug that he needed to communicate with the ship's computer. Kuyo was equipped with a small jack, which you could slot into various parts of the submarine, in order to communicate more efficiently with the computer. This was useful during large file transfers and complex real-time calculations, in which Kuyo could lend some of his own computing power to the submarine's main computer. When Kuyo reached the plug, he extended his interface jack, which was on the end of a small mechanical arm that protruded from his front, and it magnetically attached itself. As Kuyo was beginning his communication with the submarine's limited emergency systems, Lewis noticed the blue light coming from the cockpit glass quickly and silently fading, until he was in complete darkness. As the light faded, Lewis felt the submarine shifting slightly, as if it had changed direction. Gingerly, Lewis leaned over and peered downwards into the cockpit, but before he could get a good look at the glass, Kuyo toggled the emergency lighting back on. Lewis winced and brought his hand up to his eyes, feeling a stabbing pain in his head. He heard Kuyo's fans, which regulated the temperature of his computing components, spin up. Strange, the robot muttered to himself, his voice coming through the ship-wide speaker system instead of the speaker mounted to his body. We're not where we're supposed to be. What? We are too far up the robot replied, according to the emergency calculations which were made as Kyoza was heading for the trench wall. We should have hit the bottom of the trench three minutes ago, but according to the pressure sensors, we are miles above it. Lewis frowned, leaning towards Kuyo. Faulty sensor? No, if it were a faulty sensor, we'd be dead. We've been being held in place. Lewis's heart fell through his stomach, and he looked downwards into the cockpit again. Before his mind could start spiraling hopelessly, Kuyo interrupted. Either some form of aggressive current, or the force of an underwater volcanic eruption, has stopped us from moving, but we're falling again quickly. Lewis, there's a small possibility that you can escape in Kyojin. I can provide power to her using the emergency controls. Using Kyojin to escape had crossed Lewis's mind already, but it had been impossible without Kuyo's assistance. Kyojin was a small submarine vessel that was docked in Kyozo's back end. Usually, she was computer-controlled and deployed to examine Kyozo's exterior for damage or to explore areas which Kyozo could not reach. Normally, Lewis would use some of the power from the batteries to charge her up before deployment, but since the batteries were empty, this was not possible. Kuyo, however, could partially charge her using the power stored in Kyozo's power supply itself. If she had not sustained the same level of damage as Kyozo had, Lewis was in with a chance of escaping. As he realized that his survival was once more a possibility, the memory of the glowing creature receded in his mind and he focused once more on the task before him. 
He was currently at the front end of Kyozo's large and relatively open lower bay, which is where much of the submarine's supplies were stored. Surrounding him, piled against the wall between the lower bay and the cockpit, were various large plastic crates containing food, tools, spare parts, and a large amount of fresh water. To reach Kyojin, Lewis would have to reach the opposite end of the bay. He looked upwards across the sloping floor, which suddenly looked like a nearly impossible ascent, and then down at Kuyo, whose light was blinking amber expectantly. How do I get up there? Climb, Kuyo replied. Lewis chuckled, despite of everything. Of course, he said. Why didn't I think of that? Kuyo just looked at him, his light glowing amber. Lewis sighed and looked around him at the various plastic supply crates. The one closest to him had the words cable management tensled across the front. He looked down at his injured arm, hanging limply beside him. Close enough, he said. Reaching forward, Lewis undid the plastic catches on the crate's lid and flipped it open. Inside the crate were various thick plastic bags containing hundreds of zip ties, larger velcro loops, sticky back plastics, and other tools for tidying up wires and cables. After rummaging around a little, Lewis came upon a knot of long, thick, elasticated cord which was intended to hold huge numbers of cables together. He wound one end of the plastic a few times around his wrist and awkwardly brought the other end over his head so that it sat around his neck like a necklace. The cord was loose enough so that it didn't constrict his movement too much while also keeping his injured elbow bent at a right angle. He had plenty of extra cord and no way to cut it, so he looped it around his waist a few times and tucked the end into his belt. Returning his attention to the box of cable management gear, Lewis's eyes came to rest on several bags of sticky back plastic. He looked up again at the sloping floor, which seemed altogether too smooth and steep to climb as he was now. He looked again at Kuyo and said, I'm going to leave this bit out of my report. Having spent the last two minutes pasting bits of double-sided sticky-back plastic onto the underside and toes of his shoes, a solution which Lewis thought extremely cartoonish, he began to apply some more plastic to the palm of his good hand, a feat which Kuya was making easier for him by holding up the small sheets of plastic while Lewis removed their protective film to reveal the adhesive surface beneath. Kuya, this isn't going to work, is it? I do not know. But it is unlikely to work. There aren't enough similar case studies for me to establish a probability of success. That's a very robot answer, Kuyo. I am a robot. Lewis looked up at Kuyo, who had just finished helping him peel the film from the last strip of plastic. The robot turned away slightly, his light still blinking amber. Rupert Gray had told Lewis that giving Kuyo a blinking LED instead of a face had been a deliberate decision to avoid Lewis overestimating the extent to which Kuyo could feel emotion. He provides the illusion of emotion, Rupert had told him, without the messy bits. He can think for himself, very strategically in fact, but he can't feel for himself. Strangely enough, Lewis found himself wishing that Kuyo had been given a face after all. There were some things which a blinking amber light could not express. He fought the urge to reach out and touch Kuyo, who was still turned away, as if distracted. 
It had only just occurred to him what he was leaving behind, if he managed to escape. Suddenly, Kuyo's light turned red, and he turned to Lewis abruptly. Lewis, you haven't much time. You need to go now. Lewis snapped back to reality. He looked up at the slope before him and braced himself. Slowly, propping himself up on the tips of his fingers to avoid sticking to the slope, he got to his feet. He had to go about 20 meters uphill before he was able to enter Kyojin's docking bay. Bending his knees and pulling with his hand, he managed to wrench his right foot from the corner between the floor and the wall. He brought it up to the slope and pushed it firmly onto the surface, then reached up as far as he could with his right hand and thunted it against the slope too. Slowly, he began to pull upwards on his left foot, which was still stuck to the surface in the corner where he had been sitting. Gradually, he felt the adhesive loosening until eventually his foot came loose. Painstakingly slowly, he brought his left foot upwards, bending at the waist until it was higher than his right foot and firmly planted it onto the slope. Flattening his body against the smooth surface, he unstuck his good hand and reached higher, planting it again on the slope. In this painfully slowly manner, Lewis made his way, inch by inch, up the slope towards Kyojin's docking bay. He had to take several breaks in which to catch his breath and had a few near misses where he almost fell backwards, but he eventually made it, panting and sweat-soaked, to the door of Kyojin's docking bay. Making an effort not to look back at Kuyo, Lewis pushed the manual release button on the door, cursed, unstuck his hand from the button, and, with great effort, wrenched the sliding door open. The Kyojin docking bay was little more than a control room and a glorified hole through which Lewis could enter the mini-submarine. The design team had considered an internal dock for Kyojin, but the concept proved too complicated and took up too much space. The result was that Kyojin clung to Kyozo's sleek black exterior like a limpet, detaching and reattaching at will. While it was certainly a little ugly, Kyojin was of a far earlier and less elegant design than her mothership. Her hydraulic arms allowed her to pick up samples and repair any minor damage to Kyozo's hull, making her an essential addition to Kyozo's design. Lewis pulled himself into the control room and rested for a moment against its wall, catching his breath. Around him, he could hear a powerful humming, the sound of Kuyo diverting energy from the power supply to charge the mini-sub. He could also see Kyojin herself. The exterior wall of the chamber was made of glass, and a set of LEDs were lighting up the mini-sub as it clung to Kyozo's hull just in front of him. Lewis squinted at the mini-sub. Not much bigger than a car, with large ballast tanks, a cargo bay and a powerful motor which all took up space, Kyojin had one of the most cramped cockpits that he had ever managed to cram his tall frame into. He subsequently hated the craft, and tried to use the radio control wherever possible. Although this was only practical up to a certain range, thanks to the Upsilon 6 mineral blocking communications. However, he had never been more pleased to see a submarine in, apparently, undamaged condition. Presently, the lights turned green. Kuyo's voice chimed in over the speakers. She's fully charged, but I can't run diagnostics from here. You'll have to do it yourself, inside the sub. Got it, Lewis replied. 
taking a deep breath and reaching up towards the submarine's hatch. He lifted the plastic lid over a large red button and pressed it. There was a hissing noise before the hatch doors flew open and Kyojin's internal lights lit up, welcoming Lewis into the small cockpit. Lewis heaved himself up and into the cockpit, bumping his head painfully against the cockpit glass, which, like in Kyozo, was really an OLED monitor. Sensing his weight on the chair, the screen immediately went completely red, beeping alarmingly. Lewis swore again. The screen read, unable to decouple, damage sensed in ballast tanks. Lewis thumped the control panel, causing more beeping, before resting his head in his hands. Why do we make ballast tanks out of paper? Kuyo's voice came through the control console. Do the hydraulics work? Lewis frowned, craning his neck around to try to look at Kuyo, but finding that his sling made the movement impossible. He sighed, reached forward, and wiggled one of Kyojin's joysticks. Although he couldn't see through the completely red screen, he heard the whir of one of the minisub's hydraulic arms rotating back and forth. They seem to be, he said. Why? Throw me that cord. What? From your sling. Is it strong? The cord? Yes. Pretty strong, I suppose, but why? Throw it down to me. Kuyo, why? Throw me the cord. There's no time. I d- Throw it. Trust me. Lewis hesitated, his face crumbling into more and more of a frown, before laboriously unwinding the cord, which was wrapped around his body several times. Having removed the sling, Lewis looked down into the lower bay, at the bottom of which he saw Kuyo. The little robot had extended its front arms, which were normally used to hold tools or to work on microelectronics, as if to catch the cord. His light was bright red and flashing rapidly. Quickly! The robot called to him. Punching the cord into a rough loop, Lewis did his best to throw the cord downwards into the lower bay. The cord bounced and slid along the smooth, sloping floor, and Kuyo caught hold of the end of it in his stubby arm. He turned quickly and, his duck-like feet pedalling faster than Lewis had ever seen them go, hurtled out of the lower bay and through the door to the battery compartment. What are you doing? Lewis called after him. Kuyo's voice came through the speakers again. You need to override Kyojin's launch stop protocol. There's still a way you can escape. I don't understand. You need to do that now, Lewis. Lewis turned in his seat and, hand trembling, dismissed the damage alert using the control console. With a little bit of dubious programming, Lewis was able to find a way to bypass Kyojin's launch stop protocol and decouple without requiring diagnostic checks. Lewis hit enter on the control panel keyboard and the red alert disappeared, giving him a clear view beyond the cockpit glass for the first time. Lewis was instantly paralyzed by horror. Above him, hovering above the submarine like an immense thundercloud, was the creature from before. Unlike in Kyozo's cockpit, it was now far away enough for Lewis to get a proper view. Its six tentacles, each appearing to be the size and length of a railway train, twisted and writhed in the darkness. In the center, Lewis could just make out a huge beak, not unlike that of a squid, 
but hundreds of times larger, illuminated by the bioluminescent material in the creature's body. The cavernous beak opened slightly, as if in greeting. Lewis was certain that the creature could easily swallow Kyozo whole. Slowly, he became dimly aware that Kuyo had been talking to him through the submarine speaker for some time. Go! Decouple! You have to decouple! Right now! Trying desperately to wrench his brain out of terror-struck paralysis, Lewis tore his gaze away from the horrific leviathan and focused on the control panel. Now! Lewis slammed his hand down on Kyojin's launch button and heard the dock doors seal behind him. There was a hissing noise and several beeps as the mini-sub's systems booted up and prepared for decoupling, then a loud clunk as the clamps that held Kyojin to her mothership released her. Immediately, the mini-sub turned upside down, facing Lewis towards Kyozo. The punctured ballast tanks had failed to orient the mini-sub correctly, and although Kyojin's lesser density meant that she was not falling as quickly as Kyozo was, she was still sinking rapidly into the trench. Lewis was struck by the instant reduction in temperature. The walls of Kyojin's cockpit, while extremely thick and durable, felt like paper in comparison to those of Kyozo. The only thing that Lewis could see in the darkness was the lights of the Kyojin control room rapidly receding into the depths. He fixed his eyes on the light, desperately trying to distract himself from what was behind him. He watched the light get gradually smaller, 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 until it was nothing but a speck of yellow in the cold, inky void. Then, quite suddenly, it ceased to exist. All that work. Hundreds of millions of dollars of cutting-edge technology instantly erased, like a tea light being snuffed out in the depths of a dark, echoey cathedral. Lewis's breath, amplified by his cramped surroundings, was starting to catch in his throat. Despite being trapped for most of the past two years at the deepest point on the planet, he had never felt as utterly isolated as he did now. But then, a light. A tiny speck of white winked into existence from the jet black cold. Lewis held his breath watching the light as it slowly got larger and larger, blinking steadily, before suddenly realizing what it was. A group of batteries. Gyozo had jettisoned a batch of her self-guided batteries before she had hit the trench bed. But why? Had Kuyo done it? Then Lewis realized. The robot must have uploaded a report of the incident onto the battery hard drive before it was jettisoned. Lewis exhaled, his breath fogging up the cockpit glass. They would know. His friends, his family, would understand what had happened. They would get closure at least. Maybe they'd even figure out who had done this to him. Despite the ballast tanks preventing Lewis from moving up or down, he could still make feeble adjustments to the course of the submarine's descent by using side-mounted propellers. He used the joystick to move closer to where the batteries were going to pass him on their way to the surface. He wanted to see them clearly. As the batteries came closer and closer, 
he realized that something looked wrong with them. They were rising too quickly. Normally, the batteries only used their propellers once they had reached the ocean's surface, but for some reason Kuyo had programmed the batteries to activate their propellers early. When Lewis looked closer at the propellers, he noticed something else unusual. The elasticated length of cord, which he had used to create a sling, and had subsequently thrown to Kuyo, was tied to the underside of the batteries, and was trailing behind the pack, only just visible in the blinking light. In an instant, Lewis realized why Kuyo had asked him whether Kyojin's hydraulic arms were working. Seizing the mini-sub's controls, Lewis wrenched Kyojin's throttle as high as it would go, lurching towards where the battery pack was passing him. Reaching the batteries just in time, Lewis reversed the throttle, swinging the front of the submarine, where the arms were located, around to face the battery and the trailing cord. The floodlights mounted to the front of the submarine, illuminated the cord fully, and Lewis extended Kyojin's arms desperately towards it, flailing them around in an attempt to entangle them with the cord. Against all the odds, it worked. The cord, which was being blown around by the force of the battery's propellers, wound itself several times around the mini-sub's right arm. The cord immediately became taut, and Lewis saw the battery's ascent halt abruptly as the cord stretched out to three times its normal length. For 10 meters or so, the mini-sub's greater density dragged the batteries down into the trench. To his absolute horror, Lewis realized that the cord was coming undone on Kyojin's right arm. Lewis grabbed the joysticks in a white-knuckle grip and brought the two arms together. He managed to grip the right arm with the left arm, stopping the cord from unraveling. The batteries, their propellers straining against the weight of the submarine, eventually forced themselves upwards, dragging the submarine at a snail's pace with them. Lewis, struggling to believe his luck, did not let go of the joysticks for several minutes. The rate of his ascent, slow at first, was gradually increasing. Lewis struggled to force himself to breathe normally. He did not want to hyperventilate and end up fainting. Lewis had almost forgotten about the glowing leviathan, but it didn't take a lot to refresh his memory. One glimpse at the tip of one of the creature's vast tentacles was enough to make Lewis freeze and want to vomit at the same time. The creature was descending past him towards the corpse of Kyozo, quickly, like a kestrel swooping down on a rabbit. It was then that Lewis got a proper look at what he had only glimpsed beyond the creature's tentacle when he had seen it in Kyozo's cockpit. The eye. Easily the size of a house, disproportionately huge even for such a vast entity, the eye was blood red, contrasting disgustingly with the pale blue of the creature's bioluminescent cells. The iris was ringed like a tree trunk, with paler strips of tissue forming circles around the pupil, which shone like a golden mirror. The eye flicked around unnaturally quickly for such a huge object and focused on Kyojin. Lewis fainted. When a pack of four Upsilion-6 batteries coasted into Takuyo Energy's Osaka power plant a month early and dragging a Kyojin-class repair unit behind them on a piece of elastic cord, many at the company were puzzled. When they fished Kyojin out of their dock using a crane, only to find an unconscious and rather bedraggled-looking engineer inside, their reaction went from puzzlement to concern. 
When Lewis eventually woke up and told them the story of his escape, they believed it only because it was too improbable for him to have made it up. It was Lewis's turn to be surprised, however, when they told him what Kuyo had uploaded to the battery hard drives. In fact, he was so surprised that he had to go and check for himself before he believed it. Lewis had been expecting a report of the incident, something that Kuyo could have generated using audio clips and data from the submarine's computer in order to explain Lewis's disappearance. In actual fact, what Lewis found on the battery hard drives was Kuyo himself. The little cuboid had uploaded his own personality onto the hard drive, preserving it for the next model. There was one part of Lewis's story, however, that he did not tell. One part that he wished to forget. When Takuyo's experts asked him to explain how it took the submarine so long to sink to the bottom of the trench, Lewis explained it the same way that Kuyo had done for him at the time. Volcanic eruption, perhaps, maybe a particularly strong current. He could tell from the looks on the experts' faces that they thought this was unlikely, but they could tell from the look on his face that pressing him on the issue wasn't a good idea.